Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome to Season 2 of the Logical Christian Podcast. I'm your Logical Christian, Dan Irwin. Welcome to those who are here for the first time, and a hearty welcome back to the LCP faithful. What we do here is look at what the mainstream media feels is important to tell us about current events, politics, science, religion, and just about anything else, but we're not interested in their spin. We want to look at these stories logically, and we especially want to look at these stories as Christians. Links can be found in the show notes if you'd like to follow along. So with that, let's go be logical Christians. Ah, flexibility. What a wonderful thing. And let me tell you, I am to flexibility as planking is to yoga. Yeah, simply bending over to pick something up, I can hear tendons and ligaments snapping like over-tightened guitar strings. Luckily, that's not the kind of flexibility we're talking about today. No, we're talking about how flexible the world is or how inflexible it is regarding the meaning and intent of various topics, depending on the topic and the agenda at hand, and also being pushed. Yeah, that kind of flexibility. So, on today's episode, first we're going to flex on math, then we'll be flexier than a speeding bullet, and finally we'll be super flexible, but only when it behooves us. If there is no behooving, there shall be no expectation of flexibility. So, Carefully and wokefully open your math book, locate the closest telephone booth, and prepare to be violated because... Oh! Ah! No, there it is. Nope, I've pulled something. No, where's my TENS unit? Here we go. Some of these stories you just think, where do you start? When I first read this, I had a number of thoughts, a number of opening paragraphs, a number of hooks, and I'll get there. But overall, my thought was... I wonder what percentage of people in the Western or First World are actually performing work that contributes to maintaining or bettering our current world. I think this will become very clear very quickly, but to elaborate just a little bit more, I wonder how many people are employed in made-up, pointless, useless jobs that at best simply shouldn't exist or more than likely, are subversive to the existence of humanity. With that said, we now return to our regularly scheduled opening hook. Pop quiz, hotshot. Two plus two equals... Right, four. Very good. Nine times three equals... Okay, a few less there. Nicely done, some of you. Twenty-seven. How many feet in a mile? Okay, 5,280 for... Those of you that uh, have kind of dropped out of the quiz here, how do you find the area of a circle? That that kind of narrows the field a bit, doesn't it? There, it's pi times the radius of the circle squared. Now, let me ask you this. If there are two trains... No, I'm just kidding. It's, we're not going to do word problems here. Now, you may not be a math whiz. In fact, you may hate math. But I think you'd have to agree that math is uh, pretty important. If it wasn't for the constancy of math, we'd literally be in a club-wielding stone age. Whether you measure in feet or meters, spans or cubits, buildings beyond mud huts, or bridges, roads, airplanes, cars, etc. wouldn't exist without math. Our society, our world, is built on mathematical equations. I'm confident in saying that even undiscovered savages in the deepest jungles use at least some math. Don't believe me? Go ask them. One of the reasons I like math is because I'm a nerd of an engineer, but another reason is because it's purely logical. I often make a joke that I love math, but calculus isn't math. I don't know what it is, but it ain't math. 
Truth be told, I hate calculus. I did not excel in calculus. And in nearly 25 years since my last calculus class, I've never used calculus. But even with my disdain for the black magic that is calculus, I will admit that it is, in fact, math. And it is logical to some people. And it's 100% repeatable. All math is perfectly repeatable. There will never be a time where you work out an equation the first time, work it out again, and the answers are different and both of them are correct. If you get two different answers, either one is right or they're both wrong. Math is logical and repeatable. And why would it not be? God not only utilized math in creating the entire creation, he created math along with his creation. God is a God of logic and rationality, repeatable, logical math must be part of his creation. It's a gift to his creation. It's highly valuable for his creation. But when you don't believe in God or creation, created order, truth, or sanity, you find on the blaze.com headline, math has colonial bias, teachers to attend indigenous math retreat to confront harmful practices. The industries of woke, racist, sexist, inclusivenessist, diversityist, equitist, environmental catastrophist, and the like are massive, and they're all nonsense. These are the modern-day versions of the old joke about getting your degree in underwater basket weaving, or the slightly updated version of women's studies, or something like that. In the old days, the only place you could use a worthless degree, like in, you know some of those, was at a college where you could teach classes about your worthless degree. Now, these days, eh, you can take your stupidity and your act on the road and peddle it to just about any corporation or public entity, any union hall, just call yourself a consultant or an expert. Now, one of the many current trends is how education is racist and or colonialist in nature. English and grammar is white, Eurocentric, thus racist. History is the white devil's version of history. And math, well, math clearly came from the white man, so it's harmful to all other ethnic groups since white man's math which is forced upon them, may be very different than, say, indigenous math. So, what's the story in question? Well, the Ontario Mathematics Coordinators Association, or OMCA, OMCA for short, is holding their two-day annual retreat open to mathematics educators and leaders at $275 to $300 per person per night, depending if you're a member or not a member and how many people are going to be piling up in your room, whatever. And they can come and, quote, deepen their understanding of incorporating indigenous knowledge systems to enhance and transform the teaching and learning of mathematics for all students. Nope. I don't know what that means either, so let's dig a little further, and i just like to read the About the Retreat section verbatim with a little bit of commentary thrown in there. Quote, Throughout this two-day session, participants will explore how mathematics, along with other subjects, are not exempt from colonial bias and harmful practices that lead to inequities in student achievement. Now, I'd like to jump in here and ask... 
how could math be subject to colonial bias? How could math be harmful or lead to inequity? And I ask this knowing, sadly, that uh, one of these self-important, made-up job-invented, problem-creating speakers, who we'll get to in a moment, has an answer for my question. And were I to listen to it, it may cause me to spontaneously combust. Let's go back to the About section. Quote, Indigenous knowledge systems, pedagogies, and methodologies can enhance and support the teaching and learning of mathematical concepts. <laughs> Again, this is me. Can it? Because I'm pretty sure that teaching math will support the learning of, um, of math. Now, I do understand that there are multiple learning styles, visual, oral, verbal, kinesthetic, etc., but I've never seen a list or a chart or a test where indigenous was a learning style. <laughs> Again, we shall continue. Quote, educational spaces can uplift indigenous knowledge systems and create transformative learning for all students. <laughs> Hi, back again here. What the heck is an indigenous learning system? I mean, not to sound crass or racist, which in saying that it means I'll probably absolutely sound both crass and racist, but is their system something like uh, eight puffs of the peace pipe remain? If the white devil with the thunder sticks takes two puffs, which is one more than he was supposed to, but that's what the white devils do, steal from the native man, how many puffs are left for the rest of the powwow circle thingy? I mean, how can indigenous math be different from math math, or I guess white man math? Moving on, quote, Facilitators will also showcase their newest resource, Lessons from Beyond, which include connections to the new grades, 6 through 8, Ontario Mathematics Curriculum, as well as share tips and strategies on how to work with indigenous knowledges without appropriating, minimizing, or tokenizing. Now, you want to know how old I am? I can remember a time that teachers taught their students the subjects that they were hired to teach, and they didn't have to worry about appropriating or tokenizing anyone. <laughs> Crazy, I know. So that's the About section. Would you like to have a look at the highly educated and totally legitimately productively employed facilitators for this uh, conference? Oh, yeah, sure you would. There are three of them, which for this subject, this specific topic, I mean, the fact that there are more than one of these clowns that believes this tripe and has made it their pretend mission to educate all of us about how, how terrible we are. This is, um, this is fascinating that there's this many. It doesn't matter. First is Tessa Fiddler. Now, Tessa appears to be a, uh, a sturdy middle-aged woman. You'd probably never guess it by her appearance, but she is in fact in Anishinaabek way. And judging by the predictable red squiggles under Anna Shinabekway, calls into question the racistness of Microsoft, I have spelled it correctly, so joke's on you, Mr. Gates. Well, she's a native on Ontarianite, or, or an Ontarionian, or an Ontarian, I don't know, who considers the Ona Gaming and Muskrat Dam First Nations her true home. That said, she also has historical connections to to the to Kitchenumaykusib Inuwug territory, 
So put that in your peace pipe and smoke it. She currently lives in Thunder Bay, that's easier to say, and is the, quote, indigenous educator resource teacher with the Thunder Bay Catholic District School Board. All of this loosely translated says that Tessa has Native American blood and she's found a way to exploit her heritage in order to grab a job from the land of make-believe and that allows her to slog her way through a swamp of anger, hatred, entitlement, and lies. Next, we have Isaac Murdoch, but that's his slave name, or something, I don't know what they call it. His Ojibwe name is, uh, oh, deep breath here, okay, here we go, Manzinapikanigigogo, a navy, slash, Bomgazik. So, so yeah, so he's from the Fish Clan, from the Serpent River First Nation. That said, the notably younger than Ms. Fiddler... Isaac, because I'm not saying that one again, has some nice-looking, I think maybe doves tattooed, uh, one on his forehead, one on the temple, and scooting on down one on his cheek. And my question is, why aren't they fish? If if he's from the fish clan, I don't, maybe they're flying fish. I don't know. It's a small picture. Now, he spent many years learning from, quote, elders in the northern regions of Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Manitoba. He's, quote, well-respected as a storyteller and traditional knowledge holder. Now, call me cynical. (laughs) Many people have, but I have a feeling his addition to this uh, retreat is a bunch of vague nonsense that he passes off as knowledge and wisdom from the elders. Finally, we have one Jody Williams, a pleasant-looking woman about Mr. Woman's age. She doesn't have a funny name, just Jody Williams. Strike one in my indigenous book. She's quite the indigenous treat, let me tell you. She's the indigenous education coordinator for the Dufferin Peel Catholic District School Board. She's also the co-chair for the First Nations Metis and Inuit Education Association of Ontario. She's also the lead on a provincial community of practice for indigenous knowledge and mathematics. She's also probably got a 8 by 10 sheet of paper for a business card. She's developing resources to support indigenous education in schools. And finally, she, quote, travels globally giving workshops. Oh, oh, Ms. Williams, how do you find the time? Well, it's because she doesn't actually have a job. See, she can pretty much say, write, create, or do anything and tack indigenous on the end. And in the circles that she runs in, ain't nobody going to question her for fear of being ostracized for being racist or indigenous or something. Now, there's a link to their website, which is omca.website which sounds eerily similar to the 555 phone numbers in every TV show and movie in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. But when you try to go there, you get permission denied. Or at least, when I try to go there, I'm denied. So you may think this is crazy, and you'd be right. But unless you've been hiding in your COVID bunker for the last few years, you know that Canada, yeah, she's not doing too well. You know, mentally, up there. To that end, Ontario brought in a new math curriculum in 2021, and that's fine. It's nice to update the books, ensure the kids are being rigorously taught math, correct the errors, you know, so they can be doctors and scientists and engineers. Oh, uh oh, oh no. The curriculum states that mathematics, quote, 
is often positioned as an objective and pure discipline. However, the content and the context in which it is taught, the mathematicians who are celebrated, and the importance that is placed upon mathematics by society are subjective. <laughs> Hold on. Hold that thought. It goes on. Quote, Mathematics has been used to normalize racism and marginalization of non-Eurocentric mathematical knowledges, and a decolonial anti-racist approach to mathematics education makes visible its historical roots and social constructs. So, so math is, in fact, a very pure, very objective discipline. Unless you want London Bridge and all other bridges to fall down, my fair lady, you're going to want pure, objective, black and white. Oh, can I say that? Math. Math can't be racist unless you've got a word problem counting the number of slaves on the auction block at one time or calculating how many Indians will die if you, I don't know, force them to walk from Florida and Alabama to Oklahoma in the middle of the winter or something like that. But I just don't think math anywhere contains, you know, that. I also believe that if you went to some of these non-Euro countries and tried to tell them that math is Eurocentric and racist and such, they'd all do their own equivalent of racking their shotguns saying, get off my lawn. Now, truth be told, it's the non-Western countries, the third worlders, if you'd like, that are probably the most sane and logical these days, and good for them. I mean, bad for us, but good for them. Of course, Canada isn't alone. California is getting in on the game as well, and I'm sure other leftist mentally handicapped blue states are either there with them or bouncing off the figurative rubber-coated hallways trying to get there as fast as their straight-jacketed torsos will allow them. California teachers must find ways to include critical race theory into math. <laughs> into math! They need to figure out how to indoctrinate the innocent children, which is also known as mental, emotional, and psychological child abuse, about social justice using math, and they're being told most recently to ensure they promote gender identity, trannyism, and LGBTQ plus propaganda in their lessons as well. Now, I know as Christians we're supposed to be loving and forgiving. I agree with this. I also agree with justice. Now, I don't wish even the worst of the worst to spend eternity in hell. They deserve it, but so do you and I. I'd much rather see all humanity see the truth, understand the truth, repent, believe, and be the largest defender of the faith this world has ever seen. But the reality is, that's not likely to happen. The good thing is, God is sovereign. He makes that decision, not me. Not even them. And not one person will die without being saved that was supposed to be saved. Not one that was given to Jesus by the Father will be lost. So, that said, I'm a firm believer in justice. We start with declaring professions that aren't actually professions as um not a profession, and we shut down the income streams to these clowns. That can happen naturally, as the public sector refuses to fund or support them in any way. <laughs> Good luck with that. And the consumer refuses to work with or buy from companies that seem to believe their primary purpose in life is to indoctrinate rather than serve their customer then I think we need to level set justice. The problem I have is that when you really get to the bottom line, the goal of all of these groups is to destroy children. The trannies want to destroy them. The climate activists want to terrify them. The race baiters want to shame them. And the leftists want to make them as stupid as possible, you know, because no better working drone than a stupid working drone, am I right? So when I think of justice for these guys, sorry, these men and women, and that's all, 
I believe they're all child abusers at heart. And I believe child abuse forfeits your right to your life. You've severely compromised or, in fact, stolen the lives of millions of children. As you stand before the judge and jury, how do you plea? And then you read the evidence, pass the judgment, carry out the sentence immediately for everyone to see. Now, this is why I'll never be anywhere in the political spectrum. Thankfully, I have no interest in being in that cesspool. Now, this is where you get when you unhitch from true truth. And math is simple. It's logical. It's repeatable. It's usable. It's vital. And it's been created by and given to us by God. When you believe somehow that there is no God, that everything is random chance, everything is evolving, then why not math too? How dare we not see that math can be math and not math at the same time? How dare we tell a young person of color that two plus two does not in fact equal five? Do we want him to be scarred for life? Do we want him to feel inferior to say a white peer or a white teacher who adamantly insists that two plus two equals four? Oh, no, we do not. And how do we as honkies know that for the race of people of color, Two plus two doesn't equal five. Or for the indigenous people that two plus two doesn't equal a handful of beads. I don't know. If we've never walked a mile in their moccasins, how can we know? Well, we can know because God made math. We know that Noah built the ark to exacting detail, measured in cubits. We know that there were workers of wood, brass, and iron needing very specific math in order to refine and create. We know that the pyramids were built with an exactness that couldn't have been done without some complex math, and we still don't know how they did it. We know that the temple was to be built and furnished using cubits, and the list goes on. Wrapping this up, I wonder if we'll ever see a return to sanity, where all of these agenda pushers are tossed onto the street, forced to look for a real job, where if they use their own version of math when they're counting back your change, they'll be severely berated by the customer and possibly by their boss. Unfortunately, even if we do return to sanity from a societal standpoint, it'll be short-lived with even more powerful forces waiting in the wings to push once again. That is, unless a spiritual revival takes place. That's the only thing that can really change this. Now, looking around today, it's very easy to see the end times or the collapse of society or the divorce of America waiting in the wings. But I, I also see the veneer cracking. The tranny garbage is getting pushed back against. The climate thing is being lambasted. The COVID fear porn is fading and fading quickly for most humans. Personally, eh, right now I give us a 50-50 chance that we either move into collapse or we move into the next great revival. Um, that's better than I've thought in a long time. There are some good signs. But in the meantime, we'll have to be diligent to not allow these woke, agenda-driven dolts to indoctrinate our kids with nonsense, like math can be racist. Think back to the last time you were offended. Done? If you're like most people, especially Americans, it shouldn't take you long, as we're offended about 3.8 billion times per second. Yeah, on average. Probably. It used to be that we could joke about someone being a snowflake, but it seems like we're walking through a never-ending winter bomb cyclone thing at this point of, of snowflakes that are just constantly offended. Now, as Christians, the only thing that should offend us is sin, and we shouldn't be offended for our own sakes, but for our Savior's sake. This world isn't about us, our world. This world is all about our God. 
We know that if our eye, our hand, our foot offends us, in other words, it's the cause of our sin, we are to cut it off and live without it rather than go to hell. Now, of course, this is metaphorical, as removing an appendage or an organ won't change the heart and the mind, but the point being, we should be so offended that we sinned against God that we would even maim ourselves to stop doing it. We also know that Jesus was going to be the stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to the Jews at his coming. And (laughs) was he ever? And he still is. We know that Christians are supposed to strive to not offend others, although speaking the truth found in the Bible will, by definition, offend those others. We also know that in Matthew 24, the disciples asked Jesus privately what the signs of his prophesied second coming would be. Jesus replied, and this is taken from the KJV, Take heed that no man deceive you, for many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. And ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that ye be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in diverse places. All these are the beginnings of sorrows. Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted, and shall kill you, and ye shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. And then shall many be offended, and shall betray one another, and shall hate one another, and many false prophets shall rise, and shall deceive many. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved." I'm not a proponent of the perpetual theory that we're at the end of the book, as nearly every generation since the ascension of Christ has thought, you know, they'd be the ones to see his return in the clouds. Personally, I don't know. It could be moments. It could be millennia. It's not my concern, to be honest. My job is to uh, do my job. But I do find it interesting that this passage says that uh, towards the end times, many will be offended. It sure does sound like our current day a little bit, uh, doesn't it? As Christians, we should strive to not offend nor be offended. In my opinion, being offended is to lose sight of our sovereign God and to pretend that the world isn't sinful. I know that neither I nor you can avoid either of those at all times, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't try. Proverbs 19.11 tells us that good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. And Proverbs 17.9 tells us that whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. We should forgive and forget offenses by others, but if that other keeps taking advantage of our patience and forgiveness, he'll end up destroying any possible relationship. That said, Christians, and I'd say this is with good intent, tend to get offended on God's behalf about things they probably shouldn't. Put simply, where in the Bible does it tell us that Christians should expect the unregenerate, sinful, God-hating world to walk, talk, and act like us, like Christians? Found on notthebee.com headline, New Democrat Representative Ditches the Bible to be Sworn in on a Copy of a Superman Comic Book Instead. Now, if you're like most Christians, you just about swallowed your tongue— If your Christian knee jerks at the same supersonic speed as mine, you're about to make a comment on Facebook or Twitter or phone a friend or something to make your outrage known. But let me ask you this one simple question. Why does this offend you? 
Robert Garcia, a newly elected Democrat representative from California, does not want to be sworn into office using the standard Bible and Constitution combo platter. Rather, he wants to place his left hand on the Constitution, his citizenship certificate, a picture of his parents, and as a huge Superman nerd, an original copy of Superman number one that he checked out of the Library of Congress worth over a million dollars. And to that, I say, good for him. Now, why do I think this? Well, for starters, there's nothing in the Constitution stating that a swearing or oath-taking must take place using a Bible, or anything, to be honest. In fact, Article 6, Section 3 of the Constitution says this, The senators and representatives before mentioned and the members of the several state legislatures and all executive and judicial officers, both of the United States and of the several states, shall be bound by oath or affirmation to support this Constitution. But no religious test shall ever be required as a qualification to any office or public trust under the United States. See, prior to the Constitution, and even for some time after it, some states did have religious tests in order to hold office. The founders did away with this for federal representatives. Was that because they were agnostics? Eh, some of them. But generally, they understood that they were not running a theocracy. They saw and knew what happens when a powerful government holds the religious power as well. And it appears they wanted to avoid that. As I've said before, we don't want to be a theocracy. As sinful humans, we would dramatically screw it up. Let's leave that to Jesus when he does come back. So, senators and reps are bound by the Constitution to support the Constitution during their time in office. And that's all. Now, many, likely most presidents and congressmen, have used a Bible to place their left hand on while raising their right to take their oath of office. It's become just what we do. So when someone says they want to take their oath on a comic book, our collective jaw drops. How dare that individual slight God like that? How dare he thumb his nose at the very God that created him? What a blasphemous sinner he must be. And that's correct. He is. In fact, I'd wager that most presidents and congressmen we've had were, at the moment of taking their oath, unregenerate, sinful human beings. I'd guess that only a small percentage, and seemingly getting smaller as history rolls on, were or are truly born-again believers. Mr. Garcia, for instance, is a, quote, gay man running on a platform of trans-inclusive health care. Which, side note, that may be one of the dumbest platforms I've ever heard of. I mean, first off, health care is denied to no American. I know the left jumps and screams and holds their breath, swearing up and down, literally, that people can't get health care. But that's simply a lie. Second, trans is a made-up thing. I mean, sure, there are people that feel like they're the other gender. There are people that play dress-up. There are people that get their plumbing mutilated to attempt to make it represent their feelings. But when you come down to it, a biological male is medically a male. A biological female is medically a female. So what exactly is trans health care? Is this something where the doctors will be required to play pretend and make believe also? which could literally kill people by giving them the wrong treatment? Is this what we, we want? Is this what he wants? But for the first time in 2023, <laughs> I digress. Back to Mr. Garcia. As a gay man, he is not a born-again Christian. Now, you can argue with me if you'd like. You'd be wrong. <laughs> he simply cannot be a saved individual if he has no belief 
no reverence, no fear of God, no repentance for what is clearly denoted as a sin in the Bible. So, as Christians, should we be offended that a non-Christian, an enemy of God, isn't using God's holy word to take his oath? Um, I mean, on the contrary, we should be massively offended if an individual that God hates were to use the Bible to take his oath. And yes, before the restarts, the Bible clearly shows that God hates the wicked, with a special call-out to the Nicolaitans who tried to woo God's children using idolatry and sexual immorality. A gay man pushing transgenderism is well into the land of sexual immorality. So God, per passages in Proverbs, Psalms, and Revelation, at this point in time, hates Mr. Garcia. This doesn't mean that Mr. Garcia can't be saved in the future. That's up to God. But at this time, we can say that God hates Mr. Garcia as he is a wicked man. So again, should we be offended when he chooses a Superman comic over the Bible to take his oath? Not at all. We should actually applaud his choice, encourage his choice. In fact, we should encourage others that aren't Christians to forego the standard practice of using the Bible as their swearing-in prop as well. They should use whatever means something to them, or just use nothing at all. Furthermore, I'd ask the question if even those that are professing born-again, Bible-believing, God-fearing, regenerate Christians should use the Bible in their oath. Now, I know that it's supposed to signal the solemnity of the oath. I know it's supposed to represent the gravity of this promise and the seriousness of the oath-taker, but I have two problems with this practice for nearly every Christian who does this. First, the oath of office states that the congressman swears or affirms or simply stated promises to defend the Constitution. When you look at the way even some professing Christians vote when they're a representative, I'd say that maybe that's not what you want to agree to while laying your hand on the Bible, especially when you know full well you're going to defend your interpretation of the Constitution. And don't get me wrong, I believe the Constitution was divinely inspired, but I don't believe it's a holy text. I'm saying that making a promise to do something, swearing on the Bible, knowing you're not really going to do it, seems like a bad, eh, blasphemous idea. Now, second, in Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus addresses the concept of oaths. He said, Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. So one could argue that although they aren't saying, I swear on the Bible, that is the implication of their usage of the Bible in their oath. Again, either you're going to do it or you're not. Let your yes be yes and no be no. The problem, of course, is that we're talking about politicians, where yeses and nos are, uh, yeah, they're kind of subjective. Personally, I've made it a practice, and I've made it well known to those that this would apply to, I do not make promises that, barring an act of God, I can't keep. Now, yes, I know, this gets a little hinky here and there, but generally, I'm not going to promise to go there or buy this or do that thing unless I'm very confident that I can follow through. This is a practice I adopted maybe 15 years ago now, and I think it's a good practice to make. You know, can we go to such and such place next weekend? 
Yes, as long as nothing prevents it, we'll go. That's not a promise, as I don't have the power to promise it. I give my answer, and I do everything in my power to let my yes result in yes, and my no remain a no. So, I don't think that anyone should be using the Bible as a prop, unless they literally plan to uphold the Constitution perfectly, as written in all they do in the discharging of their office. And finally, I'd personally like to see the oath of office modified, or at least given some flexibility. The oath of office reads as follows, I do solemnly swear, or affirm, that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same, that I take this obligation freely, without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion, and that I will well and faithfully discharge the duties of the office on which I am about to enter, so help me God. Now, the Christians, Jews, and Muslims can use, so help me God, in their oath. The Muslim version of God is a false god, but in their minds, they're invoking the help of Allah. But what about the rest? Those that aren't really Christians, they just say they are because that helps them win a few more votes, or because they're American, and isn't that the same thing? Or whatever else, right? I watched a swearing-in of Tulsi Gabbard, not a Christian. She's apparently a Hindu. She took her oath of office a handful of years ago on the Bhagavad Gita, which God was she invoking for her help? Why should atheists and agnostics use so help me God in their oath? They don't believe in a God. And let's be honest, when you say God, most everyone in America imagines that name to represent the God of the Bible. So as a Christian, I'd rather an atheist that denies God doesn't take his oath invoking the help of the very being he doesn't believe exists. As Christians, we should definitely try not to offend others. We should absolutely repent for sinning against and offending our God. And we should strive to only be offended when God is mocked or blasphemed by the unregenerate world. And along with those, we should definitely not be offended when non-Christians don't want to use symbols or practices that we as Christians hold sacred. We should encourage non-Christians to avoid the flippant usage of our God and our faith. God is holy. His word is holy. God is not to be brought low or mocked or blasphemed. The more we can keep his name off of the lips of the unsaved, the less his name is blasphemed. That said, we should be in prayer that the lost in this country and world have their eyes opened, that they repent and believe and turn from being a wicked enemy of God to being an adopted son or daughter, a co-heir with Christ, at which point we could revisit the idea of taking the oath of office. But until then, I don't care, and I'd much prefer that these congressmen are sworn in on whatever they choose to be most important to them. This is yet another divisive topic in Christendom, and both viewpoints can create some tension between brothers and sisters. And although we don't need to split a church or destroy a friendship over this, some quality debate is great for the mind and helps us all grow in our walk of sanctification. So what do you think? If you have your thoughts, your comments, you can either comment on this episode, or you can contact me directly using the info in the episode notes. If I recall, I believe statistically the child that feels the most overlooked is usually the middle child. But ask any child, from an only child to the first to the last, and you'll probably get a very different answer from each of them. Regardless, all too often humans tend to overlook things and people, from a child to that stoplight that's always green when you go through it, to that noise the car is making, to a spouse that's always just dependably there. 
We all too often don't realize the gravity of the situation or the importance in our lives until that overlooked thing is suddenly gone. And I would say that for most of the history of the United States up to this very day, that's where we could comfortably place the Third Amendment to the Constitution. Welcome back to the American Genesis. This is episode 22, part 4 of our look at the amendments to the Constitution, and our first episode back in 2023. Now, as a fun little exercise, recite the Third Amendment from memory. No looking on your phone. Go ahead. I'll wait. No? Now how about giving me just the gist of the Third Amendment? What does it basically protect? No Googling. Still nothing, huh? Okay. Well, maybe more basic. Spell the word third. Can we start there? <laughs> yeah, see, I would wager that most people generally know the Bill of Rights, not maybe by number or even by the fact that they're part of the Bill of Rights, but generally most people know that the government, you know, can't do this or that, or I have rights to do such and such and thus and so, but the Third Amendment has kind of dropped into obscurity. That said, for it to be third in the list should tell us that it was, and I would argue still is, very important. So let's see what the third actually says. Quote, No soldier shall, in time of peace, be quartered in any house without the consent of the owner, nor in time of war, but in a manner to be prescribed by law. Now you can see why this amendment has kind of dropped off the face of the earth. We, we don't have soldiers quartering in our houses. That kind of thing just doesn't exist today. Or does it? Well, we'll come back to this. But before we do that, let's look back and understand the history of this amendment so we can then look at the present and the future a little more accurately. Now, in order to understand the significance of this amendment, we need to travel back to the French and Indian War, which took place in the years, everybody say it with me here, 1754 to 1763. Very good. Very good. Now, this may surprise you, but I am not, in fact, a historian. So, I'm just going to give you enough info here to orient you in space and time. The French and Indian War was actually the British and French colonies battling against each other with the aid of various Native Americans, or Indian, tribes. Two years into this battle, Great Britain made a formal declaration of war against the French, which then started the Global Seven Years' War. Now, during this war, the British soldiers needed to have shelter and provisions, which were generally provided by the colonies and the colonists. However, after the war, the colonists didn't really feel that they needed to continue providing all of the stuff for the soldiers, since they weren't at war anymore. The problem was that these soldiers, oddly enough, still needed food and shelter. I mean, who would have guessed that? So, to help... Eh, persuade the colonists to just lend a helping hand, to, to share and share alike, to generously, charitably give until it hurts from the goodness of their hearts. The Quartering Act of 1765 was enacted on May 15th, saying that all soldiers needing housing that exceeds the available barracks and public houses were to be housed in inns and livery stables and ale houses and pretty much every house, barn, and building capable of housing humans, and the colonists were mandated the opportunity to provide for the needs of those housed soldier humans. This shockingly caused problems, <laughs> with the skirmish in New York being the main rebellion against the act. See, in 1766, the British sent 1,500 troops to the colonies, specifically New York, and just kind of expected them to be housed and provided for. Well, the New York Provincial Assembly openly refused and forced the troops to remain on their ships. 
As a punishment, the British Parliament suspended the governor and the legislature in 1767, and again in 1769. Or should I say they threatened to suspend them, but they never actually carried it out, seeing as the Assembly finally agreed to provide some funds in 1771 to house the troops. In 1774, in what are now known as the Intolerable Acts, the Quartering Act of 1774 was enacted. This allowed the governor to house soldiers in buildings pretty much as needed. The rumor, or the myth, supposedly, was that this act allowed the British to take up residence in any building or house of their choosing. This doesn't appear to be the truth exactly, but remember, perception is reality. So if the colonists perceived that their personal home could be managed and violated by the British, that's what they believed. Now, most colonies ignored or refused to comply, at least as much as they could. In the end, though, we had a lot of British soldiers living in the colonies housed in a variety of locations. This is why not only did this topic make it into the Bill of Rights at number three, but it was first mentioned in the Declaration of Independence. Quote, he has combined with others to subject us to a jurisdiction foreign to our Constitution and unacknowledged by our laws, giving his assent to their acts of pretended legislation for quartering large bodies of armed troops among us. Now, this was not a force that was in place to protect the colonists. This was a force put in place to control the colonists and protect the British interests. And this was unacceptable. Now, to that end, Madison and others recognized the inherent danger of the central governmental body being given enough power, or at least not having their power limited enough, uh, that allowed them to house troops in any private establishment without the consent of the owner, especially in a time of peace, thus the origin of the Third Amendment. And not only does this amendment stand today by the letter, maybe not so much the intent, but we also have the Posse Comitatus Act, which prohibits the use of the U.S. military as an intrastate peacekeeping, law enforcing, etc., etc. body. We don't want and we don't need the military to patrol our streets under the control of one individual, the commander-in-chief. Truth be told, although the president is the top-ranking military commander, those in the military take an oath to the Constitution, not the president. So, if push came to shove, they should be on the side of the law and the people. But I don't think I'd feel very comfortable testing that theory. Now, I've alluded a few times to the fact that although the amendment is in place, it's not been repealed, we've just kind of forgotten about it because it doesn't apply today, that then maybe not everything is as it seems. So this amendment states once again, quote, No soldier shall in time of peace be quartered in any house without the consent of the owner, nor in time of war, but in a manner to be prescribed by law. The question is, what was the intent of this amendment? Was this amendment to be taken completely literally? So the Third Amendment can be broken down into two clauses. The first clause says that a homeowner could not be forced to house and provide for a soldier during a time of peace. The second clause says that a homeowner could be forced to house and provide for a soldier, but it had to be during war, and it had to be some very specific law that enforced this. So first looking at intent, bringing it to today. Are we in a time of war or peace? Well, I mean, we're always in a time of war somewhere, it seems. But with regard to the country of the United States, the actual land of the United States, we are not currently in a hot war on our soil. So we're in a time of peace. 
The first clause applies to us, at least as of now. Now, we know what a homeowner is. Despite the desires of the World Economic Forum, we still actually own property. So what exactly do the terms soldier and quartered mean? Now, should the amendment be taken hyper-literally, making this amendment apply to only a military uniformed-wearing, combat-ready member of the armed forces? And if that were the case, then quartered would have to literally mean this individual must physically be living in that establishment, that house. Would this be a correct interpretation of the amendment? Well, yes. I mean... (laughs) It absolutely would. Those are the words that it uses. But is that the only interpretation? Now, I would argue no. The founders were not able to foresee all of the electronics, the surveillance, the systems and agencies that we have in place today. And of course, side note, that would lead a gunophobe to say, see, they couldn't have foreseen assault weapons either. Well, no, except a gun is a gun, always has been. I think a surface-level argument could be made that if they had foreseen fully automatic weapons or large-capacity magazines, that maybe they would have carved out some specifics. But if you look at their amendments, specifically the Bill of Rights, except for a couple points, the amendments appear to be written in a very absolutist way. Congress shall make no law shall not be infringed, shall not be required, etc. Only the third concerning war and the fifth concerning war contain any real caveats, if you could even call them that in those cases. So right to bear arms shall not be infringed. That's pretty cut and dry. So what about the soldiers and the quartering of them? Well, from my perspective, the intent of this amendment was less about the soldiers and more about the infringement on privacy or the coercive behavioral enforcement by the ruling class. The soldiers were not working on their own volition. They acted based on the orders that they were given. That's what a good soldier does, whatever his commanding officer tells him to do. Although I don't know that uh, keep an eye on them and reporting any suspicious activity I don't know that that was part of their direct order. One would have to kind of surmise that the British military was loyal to, I don't know, the British crown and hostile toward the upstart colonists just in general. So this would have been something maybe expected of the soldiers or maybe just done by them to gain favor with their commanders. And even if I'm wrong, I have no doubt that this is how the soldiers were being perceived by the colonists. Remember, at the time of the writing of this amendment, the quartering had already been attempted and enforced in some cases. The war was fought, the Americans won, so the newly elected Congress and the first president knew exactly what was going on with these quartering acts and the other intolerable acts. Furthermore, during a time of war, prior to declaring independence, the colonists had no problem providing whatever for the soldiers. It wasn't like the colonists were greedy or nationalistic in some sense or whatever. So there had to be something more involved than just this perceived added burden, at least the way that we look at it today. Now, granted, this is my opinion, and it's only partially constructed in my own adult aged gray matter. And at least according to heritage.org, it doesn't appear that any legitimate legal action has ever been brought citing the Third Amendment. But as a thought exercise, if the intent of this was greater than just a physical soldier being physically housed and it extends to government intrusion, let me ask you about the following. The NSA, the National Security Agency, 
Nearly 10 years ago now, a massive data collection center was constructed in Utah. You might recall the controversy. This essentially amounts to a gigantic spying apparatus that literally, literally collects data, phone conversations, text, emails, cyber traffic, etc. of every single person in the country. Now, they say that all of the data is flattened out, that there aren't any specific identifiers, and then the data is purged at some interval. But let's be honest here. Do, does anyone really believe that? I mean, I mean, really? Now, how is this not the government placing inside your home, inside your phone, a government agent? Not soldiers or quartering per maybe the classic definition, but, but kind of though, right? And the same could be said about the FBI and the CIA. They seem to be getting their fingers in the businesses of uh, pretty much whomever they feel they want to. And what about social media like Facebook or Twitter working with the FBI to look for misinformation? How is this not the government intruding directly into our private sphere? Then you have Alphabet, the parent of Google, with the ownership of the Android operating system, or Apple with their iOS, or Microsoft with Windows, all having their very own browsers, all having their very own search engines, all collecting data, all working in different ways and at different times with our federal government. Should that be allowed to happen? What about the very simple, not mandate as such, but recommendation of see something, say something, this kind of reporting must be handled with great care. This was the kind of thing that was just recently pushed with the red flag laws. You know, someone with a gun and you're afraid they might do something or that they're unstable. All right, so you report them. Now, although there are legitimate cases of this kind of reporting, there are also a fair number of retaliatory reports and abuse of this system to just get someone in trouble and pretty much trash their life, if even just for a little while. But the fact that we're all supposed to be reporters to the system, is that good? How about the fact that banks must report transactions of $10,000 or more to the IRS? I mean, sure, not in your home, not being quartered, but this is definitely an intrusion of privacy, a massive one. And how about probably, I would say the largest intrusion, at least in my opinion, at least for right now, cameras video surveillance, and facial recognition. This is being used probably the most in China for now, where cameras along with your mandatory COVID and ESG phone apps, the government can pretty much track you everywhere. Everyone, everywhere. Now, the U.S. isn't quite to that level, at least not that we know of, but they're working on it. Just a few weeks ago, not a government thing, but just a few weeks ago, December 21st of 2022, a woman working for a law firm that was in the middle of suing Madison Square Garden Entertainment in a personal injury case tried to attend a Christmas show at Radio City Music Hall with her daughter. Well, cameras and facial recognition identified her as someone associated with that law firm and thus blacklisted from being on the property, and she and her daughter were kicked out of the venue. And these brief examples just kind of scratch the surface. So would these fall under the Third Amendment? I don't know, right? I'm asking the question here. I think most could make a very good case. I think some would have a case against unlawful search and seizure of property, as your personal information, at least last I checked, is your property. I guess time will tell, right? As the surveillance state gradually increases, maybe some of these measures will come up against the Constitution, 
Well, and I don't know how that's going to happen, but it's important to think about it now, in my opinion. Now, some would say, if you don't want to be tracked, don't have a cell phone. That's a super idea. However, I prefer to live, you know, in the present. Sure, there are some that don't have cell phones, but that number is tiny, especially in the United States. Just because we carry a cell phone, that shouldn't mean we give up a right to privacy, especially to our government, right? And then some might argue, oh, if you're not doing anything wrong, why are you so worried? Well, is that the intent the founders had with the Third Amendment? And no soldier shall in time of peace be quartered in any house without the consent of the owner who was doing nothing wrong. No, no, these amendments were put in place to handcuff and hogtie the government as much as possible, not to put a burden on the citizen. So, is the Third Amendment only applicable to uniformed military personnel, or does it apply contextually on a broader platform? Now, I would argue the latter. Many would argue the former. What do you think? Am I way off, or are you standing with me? Let me know. And with that, we'll wrap up this episode of The American Genesis and the look at the Third Amendment. In the next episode, we'll cover the next amendment. I mean, what did you think I was going to say? I'm a fairly simple guy here. All right, so until next time. Well, we've reached the end of another episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. Don't forget to like, subscribe, comment, review, share, and all that podcasty stuff. Contact information can be found in the show notes if you'd like to reach out to me. Lawrence J. Peter said, Against logic, there is no armor like ignorance. Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So stay in the word, stay logical, stay faithful, and until next time, God bless. Thank you.